0: Greetings and salutations, you're listening to This Ends at Prom, a podcast where I, teen movie apologist BJ Colangelo, show my wife... Harmony Colangelo,
1: a seminal teen girl movie that I missed out on because I grew up as a teen boy.
0: Is today's movie truly emblematic of womanhood?
1: Or of rose-colored nostalgia glasses or your perspective?
0: Circle yes, no, or maybe to find out if we're crowning a queen.
1: Or if we're killing the teen dream. Welcome to this ends at
0: prom this ends at prom is a pod people production i don't wanna be your merch girl i wanna be your goddamn idol and i don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title but i prom party
1: hello oh we went deep this week i'm, I'm brassy that's <laughs> what i do with I'll, my nice nice baritone
0: i like it i like that you're a baritone it makes me think a lot of like you sing really well when you're singing puddles pity party
1: thank you not a lot of baritones get to sing lead so he's that's one of the only times someone's point. in my
0: register we we really like to romanticize the tenors we do oh
1: god it's it's so frustrating because I am sometimes can do tenor and I sometimes can't. It depends on how they prefer to sing.
0: I understand. I'm like a trained alto. I can sing mezzo, but I'm more of an alto, which means that I get like Adele.
1: Aren't you did the, the Annie Lennox or whatever? You're not that deep. No. <laughs> no. Okay. Well, never not mind then. Bj, <laughs> <laughs> did you just call yourself not deep?
0: No, I'm very deep. Okay. We're aware of this. You should also be aware of this. If anyone knows how deep I am, it's you.
1: Yeah, a little bit.
0: (laughs) Well, friends, I'm sad that this is the last week for May musical month.
1: Yeah, but you shouldn't be sad, because it is not only one of your absolute favorite movies, but it's for your birthday.
0: It is for my birthday. My birthday was the Sunday before this episode goes live, so it's my belated birthday, but... I wanted to pick a movie for my birthday, so of course I picked one of my favorite movies of all time because why not?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't argue with that. We're going to have some fun birthday things queued up for me in a couple weeks.
0: <sighs> we have. Some some real gems. One of
1: them was your choice, and then this one that follows that was my choice. Yes,
0: and it is painfully obvious (laughs) which one is which. But y'all will have to follow on social media for that to find out. But friends, because it's my birthday, we couldn't just have an episode with the two of us because that's not much of a party. So we have invited a dear friend of mine, a filmmaker, a writer, a producer, a just jack-of-all-trades, The incomparable Michael Verratti is here. Hi, Michael.
2: Hello. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited to be here.
0: I'm so happy that you are here. And friends, if you do not know who Michael Verratti is, you have homework because Michael is everywhere and is everything and is the perfect guest to talk about Josie and the (laughs) Pussycats.
2: Well, I mean, now I just hope I can live up to that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have like an hour and a half to figure it out. I believe in you. I think you can do this.
2: Well, I will say that you know I, I'm very excited about being here to talk about Josie and the Pussycats, and I, as I shared with you when uh, we discussed me coming on with this episode, I've I've been along on quite a journey with this movie, and by that I mean on April 11th, 2001, what the day this movie came out, I was in the movie theater with my friend and nobody else uh, <laughs> t- to see this movie uh, on opening night, and I fell in love, and I have been obsessed with it ever since, and it's been just kind of a great journey to. see this movie that was sort of misunderstood and sort of just kind of not noticed, slowly gain traction. And then the next time I saw it in the theater was 15 years later for its 15th anniversary. And Kay Hanley was there and performed songs from the soundtrack. All three pussycats, Tara Reid, Rachel Lee Cook, Rosario Dawson were present. And the directors, Harry Alfont and Deb Kaplan were there. And just to be there in this packed house with people singing along and screaming, and just knowing that like, the first time I saw it, there were two people in the theater. And the next time I saw it in the theater, there was over 2,000. It was like, this is how a cult movie grows you know it's like this is how you see the trajectory you would love to see a redemption story (laughs) truly
0: we definitely like to call it getting jennifer's bodied on our show which obviously josie is older than jennifer's body but i think like the reckoning of josie uh hasn't been quite as strong it's getting there there were a lot of really amazing thing pieces that came out this year because it's josie's birthday too josie's turning 20 this year and that just it just brings me so much joy Because when I saw Josie, I also saw it at the theater, but I was 11, and it was (laughs) for a birthday party with my sister and my cousin and some of our friends, and I left the theater just absolutely obsessed with it. I thought that it was the coolest thing. I wanted to be a rock star. Um, I've joked about it on social media and on the show multiple times that... I used to go into cost cutters with a picture of Rachel Lee Cook and say, give me this haircut. And then I'd have, you know, that perfect flipped out hair that no one else can pull off except Rachel Lee Cook. But God <laughs> damn it, did I try? And it just really makes me filled with so much happiness, like pure unbridled happiness, that people are starting to come around to Josie finally.
1: I, I like to make fun of you for your Rachel Lee Cook hair. I know, <laughs> but
0: honestly, like it doesn't look
1: bad. It's just no you're, one. You're right. No one else no can one pull can this pull haircut it off. off quite
0: like Rachel Lee Cook. Because like she, she's perfect with it. Mm-hmm. So Harmony, what was your introduction to Josie and the Pussycats? I'm pretty sure it was me, but I don't want to make assumptions. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it was you. And uh, if I believe I remember correctly, this was a film we watched uh, fairly early in on us being together. And your response uh, when I said that I'd never seen Josie and it was one of your favorite movies was, uh, What do you mean you haven't seen Josie? We have to watch it now!
0: To be fair, it's because I know that you really like music and the music industry, and that's what this movie is about. And also, despite my usual plan when I hear somebody being like, I've never seen such and such movie. And I'm like, oh, that's great. I wish I could go back and see that with fresh eyes. What a great day for you. Josie, I get a little aggressive about because I'm protective because she's my baby and not a lot of people appreciated her. (laughs) And I need people to appreciate my child, damn it. Um, So that's how I feel about Josie. But- Usually about now, we go to our friend at Fandango, our friend Dango, to get a synopsis. But since we have a guest, Michael, would you mind telling the listeners what Josie and the Pussycats is all about?
2: Oh, gosh. I mean, this movie is about the evils of capitalism. It's about... A small town ragtag band from Riverdale who is just trying to get by. And would you know, it looks like they luck out when a mega media music conglomerate decides to pick them to be the new face of their record label. But little do they know, the label is using their music to sell products to the youth of America by burying it in subliminal messages. And now this group, Josie and her friends, they have to rise up and take the music back and and show the world that conglomerates aren't the way, capitalism's not the way, just expression is. But they have to do it in battle against 90s it girl Parker Posey. What? What's a girl band to do? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I am so glad that your description of this, like, first off, you are clearly a professional writer because that is just a beautiful description of this, this iconic That's film. how you sell this movie. This is how you sell this movie. <laughs> but you brought the right energy to it because Josie is this movie that I think so many people dismiss because they're like, oh, it's like a silly teen girl movie because that's how people react to all teen girl movies. But it is so much deeper than that. It's about capitalism and mega conglomerates and subliminal messaging and, you know, assimilation. It's against so many things. And it's all wrapped up nicely in this like bubblegum pop, like indie punk bow. And it's just, it's perfect. It's exactly what it needs to be.
2: Well, it was a movie that just really felt like a breath of fresh air uh, upon seeing it because th- at this point in in the zeitgeist, coming off of the the end of the 90s, teen pop kind of era of, of not just boy bands and pop princesses, but like the movies, She's All That and Can't Hardly Wait, and it's just sort of like the teen machine. Finally, here's this teen movie that's like, okay, we know you love those things, but what would you do if we told you that those things in some manner are also manipulating you and really I had never seen a teen movie that kind of threw that in, in our face before basically it was always just like oh yeah you know you just want to fit in and uh, go to prom you know and that's mm-hmm. it and it's like well do you because like what if prom's trying to get you to shop at Target and go get an RB sandwich and drink Coca-Cola <laughs> and, and pink is the new black you know I, I, I love that Josie was a movie that was both part of that era and also critiqued that era. That's that's a baller move, honestly.
0: Agreed. And I think a, a big part of why this movie went so underappreciated for so long is, one, I know that the point went over a ton of people's heads because even with its 20th anniversary – I wrote an article that was basically saying Josie predicted influencer culture, and we should have listened, and there were people replying to me like, I couldn't get into that movie. the product placement was just so heavy handed, and I wanted to scream because I'm like that 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 that's the that's the the whole point the whole point is that it's <laughs> heavy handed and extreme and in your face. Because, oh my gosh, like the frustra- the flames on the side of my face about that, for real. It's like, after 20 years, you still don't get it. Oh my God.
2: And I think it would be, it's very important to point out up front, especially for people who think the product placement in this movie is egregious. One, it is, but it is also important to know that this movie is, is so steeped in product placement because of the messaging of the film. And the filmmakers did not take a single penny from any of the corporations that are featured as product placement in the movie. And that was a very, very important thing for me to learn because they towed the line. They're like, okay, Mm -hmm. here's here's the McDonald's hotel room that, you know, one of the pussycats is staying in. And McDonald's, like, had no influence over this movie. But it also shows in some degree, like, not to stick up for corporations because I certainly won't. I do appreciate that a lot of these people kind of took it, you know, took it on the cuff and were like, okay, make fun of us. You know, we do do this. Mm -hmm. We get it, you know.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, that was a big thing for me, too, when I wrote that piece. It's like, oh, they have all these product placement, but they didn't take any money from it. They did not profit off of this product placement because if they did, that movie, like, they all would have so much fucking money because the amount of money that you would receive to have, like, a target plane in an opening scene my God. And <laughs> they they didn't because they're like, that's the point. Like, if we take money from this, then like, we're just as guilty. And I, I think that that's, I think that's brilliant. Oh, that
1: movie would have been in the green before release. As yeah. A, yeah. As opposed oh, to, unfortunately, not making its budget back.
2: Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, the only monetary uh, exchange that I'm curious about is I want to know how much Mr. Movie Phone was paid.
0: You know, that's a great question. Did, was he paid or did everyone slept with him? Who knows? I think Mr. <laughs>
1: Movie Phone probably charges like Michael Buffer prices. <laughs> where he's just like, yeah, I've got this voice and people know this voice and you're going to pay for it.
2: <laughs> Wait, was Mr. Movie Phone the original cameo? <gasps> oh my God. <laughs> Ooh. Dun dun dun. Also, I th- I think I should say the late Mr. Moviephone. I think Mr. Moviephone has since passed. I think Aww. he has too. Yeah. R.I.P. Mr. Moviephone.
0: R.I.P., thank you. You were the realist. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we really dive into kind of the, the meat and potatoes of Josie, um, Harmony, can you set the stage for us and tell us like what was going on pop culture wise? In two thousand and one, when this movie was released, what,
1: what was rockin' and rolling in April of two thousand and one? Yeah,
0: what do we've got? What do we have cooking here?
1: Well, the movie scene was very um, bizarre. So I, I know that Josie didn't make its money back, but I think a lot of people just didn't go to the movies because I can't imagine that, um, oh, Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles or or Joe Dirt were really taking that much money out of Josie's pocket. <laughs>
0: Oh, I'm sorry, did you just scroll over uh, Freddy Got Fingered?
1: Oh, and also Freddy Got Fingered, yes. (laughs) Wait, was that the same weekend? Uh, It was uh, the next
2: weekend, yes. (laughs) Talk about the war of my college roommates, because (laughs) I I was very much like, no, we're going to watch this VHS tape of Josie and the Pussycats, and they're like, but have you seen this Tom Green movie? Well, I think time has proven who was right, sir.
1: (laughs) Daddy, I do not like some sausages. (laughs) <laughs> at all. <laughs> but the things that are kind of in Josie's wheelhouse that were out at the time are probably... Bridget Jones's Diary is probably the closest to capturing the same sort of audience. Maybe, or but- maybe Amelie, if you want to get uh, bougie <sighs> about it. But my personal favorite film that came out this month during this year was uh, Too Legit, The MC Hammer Story.
0: I would like this to be a double feature with Josie, to see what happens when...
1: The cautionary tale. The
0: cautionary tale. This
2: this is a look into DuJour's future. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) But do I want to see Fiona interacting with MC Hammer? I do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I do need that. No, I do. I need need Fiona trying to make MC Hammer cool and like determine what makes him cool and what he needs to do. And I do
2: need to say, I mean, I know we're going to talk about it in context of the movie, but... I have been maintaining for the last 20 years that Parker Posey as Fiona is one of the greatest screen villains of all time and I think that her complete commitment to this character is just so delicious that y- you know y- you want the Pussycats to win but you you kind of don't because she's awesome like
0: <laughs>
2: to me she's she's not she's one of the great comic book villain adaptations too because you know it, Thanos, who cares? It's all about Fiona.
1: (laughs) I think Fiona would probably be the one responsible for making MC Hammer go broke and then convincing us all that he's just bad with money. Yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she's behind his behind the music episode. Maybe Fiona's behind too legit.
1: Oh, God. What if we... How meta would this be? Oh,
0: my God. What if a <laughs> Ghost wrote it? Oh, that's all I want. Uh,
1: but, yeah, speaking of MC Hammer, he was long gone from the the music charts and the pop culture world, aside from his huge, embarrassing fiscal failures. But some of the other things that were bopping around at the time, not really, uh, not too similar to what DuJour or Josie were putting out. Because this is really a time in the early 2000s where we shifted very strongly into uh, new metal and uh, post-grunge, like Creed, and a lot of R&B and hip-hop. So pop-punk hadn't quite taken off. Uh, Like, Blink-182 was doing very successful, but we were still a couple months removed from Sum 41 blowing up and Jimmy Eat World. And... It's it's just really strange to see how much things had changed from the time of Josie, like, being made to when it came out for the music scene, you know?
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, because Josie is definitely aping on, like, the boy band craze and, you know, like, the bubblegum pop sensation very much kind of when we were still super okay with industry plants, like, when we we weren't so, like, angry about it and we have like Backstreet Boys had Millennium in 1999 and then Black and Blue in 2000. The Spice
1: Girls broke up the yep, year before this came Spice out.
0: Spice Girls had broken up. <laughs> and that's devastating. The- devastating. Right? <laughs> and in sync they have, you know, Celebrity coming out the next year, but you know, they're not really doing much.
1: It was a lot of this style of music being on its way out.
0: And I do have a theory about it. Yeah. Go with me on this.
1: Where am I going? So,
0: <laughs> so my theory is that in the year 2000, that's when Eminem dropped um The Real Slim Shady. And okay. the, that is The
1: Marshall Mathers
0: LP. Yes. Right. Yes. Because
1: the one where he talks in vivid detail about murdering his ex-wife?
0: Yep, yep, the the very same. Oh, well. Um but at, when that song hit, you now have this like edgy and dangerous sort of like sensation shitting all over pop music and calling it, you know, terrible and threatening to, you know, kick Chris Kirkpatrick's ass, um, making a lot of really slut-shamey jokes about Christina and Britney, um, just really aggressively anti-pop to the point where there's also a lot of, like, anti-queer sentiment. Like, if you like this movie, you're gay. Making fun
1: of the metrosexuals of the day.
0: Yeah, a lot of that's going on. And then we have this massive shift to saying goodbye to pop music and saying hello to R&B and rap and hip hop and that's not to say that's a bad thing like all of this music is wonderful but it's really telling to me that it took fucking Eminem's white ass to show up and say hey kids don't listen to pop music listen to rap music for there to be a shift
2: and it's interesting because I you know I really key into this this notion that Pop kind of hits the zenith because in a lot of ways, you know, pop, it's like dancy, it's a celebration of self, right? And when you say uh-huh. that that shift, uh, part of that shift and the, the the finger pointing is is like, well, if you listen to this, you're you're gay or like you know this there's this sort of anti-queer sentiment that happens when it's like, don't get too glittery and, and you know and and fun because the worst thing you could possibly be perceived as is is queer. And that is such a cyclical thing that happens in culture. It's almost like we allow culture to get just so queer before we have to like beat it back down. We saw it with the rise and fall of disco where disco kind of hit a certain point where it was celebrating queer culture and the culture of people of color. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's like, no, 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 disco sucks. And if you like disco, you're you're a sissy or terrible or, or screw you. Metal, 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 which right. you know, is, is really crazy that disco gave rise to hair metal because there's nothing draggier than hair metal.
1: For real? Oh, super straight <laughs> David Lee Roth with his high kicks and spandex? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, it's Les from Liz. Les, I tried to warn you. The message on your mirror. That was you? sure was in my bathroom. Mm-hmm. But I thought you guys were killed in a plane crash.
0: That's what I thought. Wyatt?
2: Oh, well, we managed to land the plane just fine. Unfortunately, it was in the parking lot of a Metallica shop. Well, the fans beat the crap out of us. Well, you don't look too bad. And I thank God every day I knew the words to enter Sandman. It's just so fascinating to see these cycles of kind of like self-loathing. No, not self-loathing, but like actual like cultural loathing keep perpetuating by kind of just like stopping people from from feeling good, honestly.
0: I kind of think we're in that a little bit right now because I think about like when I was in college is when Lady Gaga exploded and Kesha was big and Katy Perry was big and a lot of these like fun dance pop and then immediately after it's like what do we get Lana Del Rey and Lord and like sad girl rock and now we're kind of still there with like Billie Eilish. And again, not to say that the music is bad. I like the music. But you're right, because it almost feels like it's a direct response to like party pop. Now it's like, let's talk about how depressed we all are. And it's like, wow, okay, okay, that's where we are.
1: We don't have a lot of things to be happy about right now.
0: No, (laughs) no, that's true.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. That's why I listen to happy music that actually has depressing lyrics. So I get to have my cake and eat it. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Well, let's, uh, let's dive in here and let's talk about the greatest band to ever play, the Riverdale Bowling Alley. Let's talk about Josie and the Pussycats. <laughs> Harmony, what are your thoughts on Josie, Mel, and Val?
1: They're really fun, aren't they?
0: I like, think so. Like they're, they're a
1: delight. Like I would go see them live at a bowling alley or an arena because they're a fun band, but they're also like fun people. And I think that that's a good thing, considering how all of the uh, all of the musical sequences in this movie are basically just filmed of them doing silly things in a montage.
0: That's very true. That's a good point.
1: So they have to be likable. Otherwise, it's like, why am I just seeing you do silly things like play with cats and hair dryers? But <laughs> I, I really like these three together. I think they balance each other out really, really well. I think they have unique and distinctive personalities because... I'm not particularly well-steeped in the the lore of Josie and the Pussycats. Uh, My introduction to them would have been the new Scooby-Doo movies, which was, I don't know, the 70s, but I saw it in the 90s. And Josie didn't do much outside of the comics for, like, two decades, so...
2: Didn't they have like a spinoff series where like Josie and the Pussycats go to space?
1: Yeah, they did. Yes, it was, they did. <laughs> that was uh, actually the same time that they guested on the Scooby-Doo thing right after that show got canceled.
0: And what's interesting too about the Josie animated series is that a lot of people who are like super into a lot of like the, the Archieverse sort of stuff, they've all noted that in the comics and in the cartoons, there's a lot of focus on... Alexandria Cabot, <laughs> like a oh, lot yeah. of it, too much, be- because she also has you know her cat and that like the cat is also a familiar and it's like this very Sabrina type thing.
1: She's the Snively whiplash of this universe. <laughs> yes,
0: yes, very much. <laughs> so I think that it's really interesting that they even wanted to use this property to make things, but at the same time, this is also a thing that was happening with like this and Dudley Do Right and well, you also had Rocky and Bullwinkle,
1: the Archies, like you had, yeah. you could have bands like this produce pop hits that were actually very successful in the 60s that's a very
2: good point but wait I have to say uh since your confirmation of the space cartoon uh now I'm like envisioning the sequel we never got where like we're like Josie and the pussycats are like in space and okay let's assume that it was only made a few years later so Parker Posey's out of the picture but Chloe Sevigny is now the new bad guy (laughs) (laughs) um running the moon label and uh oh my gosh I want this Deb, Harry, where, where have... are you?
1: <laughs> I want a crossover with Xenon.
0: Oh my God, if Josie and the Pussycats went to Xenon Space Station to perform, holy shit, I would lose my mind. Oh my God. Why did you implant that in my brain? Because now it's the only thing that I want for the rest of my life and I'll never get it, which means I'm going to die unsatisfied.
1: Write fanfic.
0: <laughs> okay, good point. I could write fanfic. I'm going to write like non sexual fanfic, like concert booking fanfic.
1: <laughs> this is my dream bill for a concert. <laughs>
0: Well, Michael, what is uh, what is your take on on our, our Pussycats? Um, you know,
2: Harmony really hit the nail on the head. They're all just so delightful. And what I really like about this movie is that it gives sort of equal time to everybody. It would have been very easy for this to be Josie's story, right? And I think uh-huh. that even if you're looking at it a little bit on the outside, it might even seem like it, like this is Josie's journey, but honestly, from an audience perspective, we kind of are, are seeing things from Val's perspective for, for most of it, because we see how power corrupts and how their friendship is dissolved. And Josie's sort of oblivious to this until um, she she loses everything. But we see Josie's fall through Val and how they kind of like split the POV throughout the movie And in, in this lighthearted comedy is great, because then I don't, feel like by end credits I didn't get to know everybody like I know these girls and I'm so glad that I do
0: I feel similarly and I also love that the the three of them have very distinct personalities but they work so well together as a collective I mean Josie who's our de facto front woman she's also kind of insecure and like a little neurotic at times and is constantly questioning herself and then we have Val, who is sort of the mama hen of the group. I mean, she's there to not only rock out, and she, you know, is one of the the lead songwriters with Josie, but she's also there to be like, hey, let's do this. Like, we're awesome. Like, believe that we're awesome.
1: Every band needs a stable bass player. <laughs>
0: yeah, for free. Absolutely. And then you have Mel, who's just pure optimism. And, like, it's this really nice balance of, like, Glass half empty, glass half full, and then, you know, we have our realist. And that's what we're playing with here. And it's a movie about friendship and sisterhood. I mean, the three of them are in each other's bus pass, like, pictures. It's so much about their story together and how they may be going on different paths, but, like, the the end destination is always the Pussycats. It's always their friendship. Yeah. And I, think, I just think that that's great. I don't think we get a lot of a lot of movies that are willing to do that usually the, like, the big blow up is also because somebody genuinely was being awful to another person whereas in this movie like they're literally being brainwashed Like Josie's being brainwashed so she's being a dick <laughs> not because she actually is but because Mr. Phone has told her that they are terrible people and she needs to be mean to them this is what those kids think they're hearing on those headsets and this is what they're really hearing
2: conform free will is overrated jump on the bandwagon hey that voice i know that voice it's um uh... it's
0: mr movie phone yes he does all our subliminal tracks
2: there is no such place as area 51
0: i like that there there really isn't a moment where the three of them are actively causing harm to one another because josie's being manipulated it's not her fault
1: yeah this was the era of girl power
2: And I love that it is because, you know, I I think that BJ is absolutely right. The core of this movie is about the relationship of these three girls and their journey together. And what I do like about this is that that never that focus never strays. You know, we see in a lot of movies where uh, if it's like a group of of guy friends, they'll like insert the the female like love interest, and she's not really developed. And that's usually very maddening. But one Mm -hmm. of the things I love about this movie is Alan M's there, you kind of like him, but he's not really developed. And it's about time because <laughs> mm-hmm. th- this movie' is not about Alan M and I I like that guy I mean I th- like I get it I understand why she's l- like Josie's in love with him but it's like who cares if they get together what is more important is that the pussycats stay together BJ was booing Alan M <laughs> I boo Alan M
0: because <laughs> here's here's my whole thing with Alan M so I am very much on team like Wyatt in terms of Alan M like what are you doing here like I I don't care like I'm very much in that realm I get that Josie likes him and they want to be together cool I get that Alexandra is obsessed with him probably less about it being Alan M and more about like she doesn't like Josie and wants to upset her I understand that but he is so, like, inconsequential to anything that happens in the plot that I don't fucking care. Like, oh, somebody is going to flush a toilet during your open mic. Suck it up. Like, I don't care. BJ right.
1: literally got up and walked out of the room to do other things when his scenes were on when we watched it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Josie's one of those movies where I always say, like, yeah, there's no nothing that I would ever fast forward. I love it. It's perfect. And I was like, no, I really don't care about l m Like, oh, you're sad at the aquarium that's sponsored by Evian. Grow up! I don't care. I, I care <laughs> about Josie and and the gals. I don't care about she. I care about Alan
1: M. because then Missy Pyle gets to do lots of things. That's that, true.
0: That that really is what like Alan M. is a vehicle for other women to show how much better they are than him.
2: <laughs> no, and I do think you know if there is any kind of like weakness, and I, I I don't think there's anything weak about this movie, but if there is something that we wanted to really nitpick. Uh, in terms of, like, character construct. It's just sort of that thing that happens in all teen comedies, especially movies of this time, where they felt that they had to have that love story. Like, Uh, it's really... It's just not necessary. I mean, honestly, too, if, like, you know, in part two when they go to space, uh, she's definitely... (laughs) She's definitely going to date Space Archie anyway. So, like, what, you know... (laughs)
0: Yeah, I mean, you're totally right, though. There is that forced sort of we need to have a character so that the guys have someone to relate to because they're not going to relate to Alan Cumming because, again, it's 2001 and he's a little too gay for most people. Alan
1: Cumming in this movie, I love him so much. Like He and Parker Posey also, but like specifically him because he is in so much more of the film. He is the backbone of this movie.
0: Yeah, let's talk about Wyatt. Fuck it. Let's dive in. Wyatt is the best. <laughs> like, he's terrible, but the best.
1: <laughs> yes. I love that Alan Cumming in this era really, as Tim Curry kind of like took a step back and started to do voice acting and like wound down a little bit, Alan Cumming just soared in the new millennium and took all of the roles that 10 years ago would have gone to Tim Curry.
2: Can we just acknowledge, by the way, that Alan, Alan Cumming was both in Josie and the Pussycats and Spice World? Like, if yeah. those are the only two movies you were ever in in your life, and luckily Alan Cumming has a huge resume, but if those were the only two movies you were ever in, legend. Oh, I love him so much. He's,
0: he's so funny in it, and he has the most perfect deliveries because he's a professional. Mm-hmm. He's a... Fucking genius! Like Alan Cumming can do every performance he's done, even if the movie is trash, he is fantastic. Yes, he is just wonderful. And it's this cocky attitude that he's got going on, but just the matter of fact delivery of his jokes. And the one thing I appreciate more than anything, because thank you, mom and dad, for never hiding movies from me. I had already seen Romy and Michelle at this point, so when he <laughs> makes that joke. When Catherine Isabel and the friends show up to be like, oh my gosh, we're your biggest fans. And Josie's like, no, you're not. You hate us. And Alan Cumming <laughs> deadpan is like, you should be happy that people from high school want to kiss your ass. Most people have to wait till their high school re- reunion for that. And then has this brief moment of just sadness. Oh <laughs> my God. <laughs> like, it is one of the funniest, like, stupid in jokes I have ever seen in any movie. It is. Perfect. Like the, <laughs> the timing is perfect. The delivery is perfect. And he's like that the whole movie. It doesn't matter how absurd it is. Ellen Cumming is one of those actors who always understands the assignment. Oh,
2: yeah. Well, and I think that like he and Parker Posey together, since we're, we're talking about them as villains, you're both absolutely right. You know, these are two actors who always get what they're doing. Yeah, the script of a movie may not always rise to meet the challenge but they always do. And I that's what I you know them together provide such such a structure to this movie that only you know raises it higher.
1: Yeah, because if you we were we were kind of thinking about this a little bit earlier before we sat down to record, if you put people who were less committed to just be all in on this movie than these two, I don't know how well the the, the it would have worked. It certainly would have still been good. The other elements are great, but I I feel like so much of what put the the glue that brings all these elements and like the camp and the comedic timing is just carried by these two. Like they are the anchor.
0: Yeah, I I agree completely and we really cannot talk about Wyatt without talking about Fiona who just icon and I've, I've done a little bit of research and Parker Posey was originally hesitant to do this role because, you know, she was like that 90s indie it girl darling. Like she was, that's what she was. And now it's a studio picture and it's basically a human cartoon and she has to be a cartoon villain. And it is some of the best work she's ever done in her career because she committed so hard to being this cartoon villain. And there are so many moments that she delivers that no one else can do. Like there's, after she makes that like ridiculously dramatic entrance at the party, and she does her big like, welcome to your party. Like it's so big and great. But then she looks at the girls and goes like, hey girl, let's be girly. And then it's this face she makes and the way she holds her body. It's a completely silent moment. But right away, you're like, oh, God, you're good. Like, you're so fucking funny.
2: <laughs> She's truly a master. And I think that it, it, it. you're absolutely right. It's not just the things Fiona says. It's the things she doesn't say. Parker Posey is 100% committed to this role. And it's just, you know, the, the leaping, you know, onto the bed. The pivots with the, like, you know, the dress that swishes around. <laughs> she sells everything.
0: And it's one of those like woman villain roles that we don't get to see very often because a lot of times when you have these like female villains, they're just straight up like evil bitches. Like that's the only way you can describe them. Like there's nothing about them that makes them appealing or you don't want to be friends with them or you don't even want them on screen. You just want them to like be taken down. I would watch an entire movie of Fiona doing just the logistics of how to make big concert work. Like. (laughs) I want to see that manic energy of planning and I want to see her in the booth fighting Mr. Moviephone to record her own subliminal messages. Like, I want all of this because she's so compelling as a villain because she's just incredible. Like, I want to be Fiona. Like, she's the coolest girl in the world. I want to have a sleepover with her. I don't care how weird she is. I don't care if her bedroom is... This, like, beautifully posh and feminine, like, leather-walled room, but also has baby dolls with, like, crooked eyes. Like, I'm okay with it.
1: I I don't know if it's the fact that you own screen-worn Josie headphones. I sure do. That have indoctrinated you so strongly into the cult of Fiona, but also I'm not going to argue with you.
2: Well, you know, I have to say one of my holy grail props, you know, like uh, we come from uh, the genre world and we see this all the time where like fans like want Jason's hockey mask or they want this or blah, 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 blah. But the one thing, if I could have anything from the set of any other any movie is when they're in Fiona's bedroom and there's like this Warhol-esque painting of her above them. Uh Uh-huh. Where is that? I want that. I need to find that painting. I'm sure it's like sitting like in like studio storage somewhere or hopefully Parker Posey has it. But it's just like one of those things where whenever I see that I'm like, I want that hanging in my foyer. So everyone knows who my allegiances are.
0: So here's the funny story. True story. Um number 1 there are two of those and number 2 I said the exact same thing maybe an hour ago where we were just rewatching <laughs> I was scrolling through looking at some scenes skipping over all of the Alan M skipping scenes skipping over all the LM <laughs> scenes and just kind of like going through cuz I've seen this movie a million times I did not need to watch it for this episode but I was like you know what I'm just going to scroll through and I we got to the bedroom thing and all I said is that that Andy Warhol ass Parker Posey I want it in my living room so bad <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's two of them, so we can, we can share. It'll be perfect. Yes. <laughs> Excellent work, Fiona. These kids will never know what hit them. And neither will you. I'm sorry, what was that? Huh? What?
2: You just said something. No, I didn't. Yes, you did.
0: No, I didn't. Yes, you did.
2: I said, these kids will never know what hit them, and then you said, and neither will you. I did? We all heard you. Oh. Well, what I
0: meant to say was, and neither will you guys. Meaning the teenagers? It's just emphasizing my point. Oh, oh, okay. Great. Thanks. That was close. Excuse me? I don't wanna spend like too much time talking about like Alexander and Alexandra, but I do think that they are also such pivotal, like comedic relief. I mean, this whole movie is comedic relief, but there's something really incredible about them because obviously like they're with the Pussycats, but their costumes change into a solid color to indicate like they're still listening to DeJour and they're still getting brainwashed as well and I just think that it's such a great touch to have the two of them there. Alexander doesn't listen to <laughs> Uh
2: What I love about the inclusion of Alexander and Alexandra, uh, beyond, of course, just the sheer mastery of, of, of comedy that Missy Pyle brings to everything, mm-hmm. is the fact that they are just an, another like a cherry on top of the, the film's entire metatextual presentation. Because the whole movie is all about, you know, fitting a brand, curating to a brand. And so and, and it comes to the head in that moment, like, why are you even here? And Missy Pyle's like, well, because we're in the comic book. And by her merely <laughs> saying that and admitting that's the only reason we're in this movie, it's the movie acknowledging, yes, we too are also victims of our own branding. And I think mm-hmm. that's genius, you know?
0: There's so much like Metatextual shit going on in this movie because I know I mentioned earlier the Wyatt making a Romeo and Michelle joke. We've got the the, the self awareness of Alexandra Cabot knowing that she was in the comic book, but then there's things like like the code name when they crash the plane is <laughs> Chevy to the Levy, and like that's so no. dark and terrible <laughs> and yet so funny. Or when PJ they
1: asked me, by the way, when we were watching at this most recent time, it's like, who died? And I listed three people and I was like, I think it's them, but it could also be these people. It could also be these people. I don't know. A lot of musicians die in plane <laughs> crashes, which they also comment on. And for the record, I was right on the three men.
2: Yes, she was. <laughs> well, it was uh, what? The Big Bopper, Richie, Valens, and, and Buddy Holly. Holly. Buddy Holly. There it yep. is. Okay.
0: It's, that's the day the music died. Big
1: Bopper was the one I was unsure about, but yeah, I was like but I think
0: she so. she did get it right. And yeah. so like that one gets me and then when you have like the alt goth girl who like doesn't get affected by all of the music, like the code name for her is Smells Like Teen Spirit. Like that shit is so funny to me.
2: Yeah, it's great. It's wonderful.
0: Yeah, there's just I just think that it's really really nice. And and also there's like this weird commentary that exists with Dejour as well. And, like, DuJour doesn't get analyzed the way that I think they should, because making fun of boy bands was, like, not a new thing at this point. And, like, we've continued to see it um, as we've moved forward culturally. But there's something so special about jour, because first off, everybody in there is just perfect, like... <laughs> All of them. They're so perfect
1: that they came over from a different teen movie to be in this teen movie.
0: <laughs> yes, thank you, Deborah Kaplan, for bringing them along. I'm much appreciated. <laughs> but especially like Breckin Meyer's character, who's clearly like he's the lead singer. He's like the the boy, but he's got like a tribal tattoo and like he's wearing a backwards bandana and
1: he doesn't have his soul patch, even though he's complaining about soul patches and goatees and he has neither. Yes.
0: Like that <laughs> that's going on. And then there's the argument between him and Seth green about the face and the face is like very much co-opting like, like black culture. And it's just like, wow, you're really nailing it. Like they are going all in on commentary in this movie. And like, it just went over everyone's heads and it is so wild to me because it's, so funny and also just like the meta in-joke of Tara Reid being chased around a fake TRL set by Carson Daly who at the time they were dating like
2: yeah well I think the great genius of Jour is literally in the name like they're acknowledging the fact that it is is like temporary pop music jour literally means of the day so it's just like the next
0: I thought jour meant seatbelts I thought DeJour meant- means
2: friendship DeJour means
0: crash <laughs> positions uh. <laughs> But no, you're totally right. Like it really is. Like they are the flavor of the week, and so much so, it's in their goddamn name.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh. I. But it, you know, and the funny thing is, is like everything about it was was so well curated. That opening moment where they're out front of like the the private jet. Of course, that's reference to the Backstreet Boys. I want it that way video, which was huge at the time. And
0: uh,
2: they know what they're doing. I think that's what's like really brilliant. Is like this movie. Like every beat is a knowing sort of stab at the culture of the time.
0: Yeah, it even down to like, when they have the big makeover montage, one of the prominently featured product placements is streetwear cosmetics, which doesn't even exist anymore. But if you go on TikTok and it's like, hey, like this, if you remember these products, streetwear is always on it because we all had streetwear because we all wanted to look like metallic disco balls on our eyes and on our lips. I don't know why, I think it's because we're like, it's 2000s, it's the future. We need to look shiny and chrome. Y2K, baby. Yeah, but like, Like, I love that so much. Like, it perfectly captures this moment in history, even the stuff that is now like outdated. Even like the stuff that they're pushing that's cool in this movie, a lot of it has like kind of fallen off the wayside and we don't really pay attention to anymore. Or in some instances, like they predicted it correctly. Like, there's one of the lines in there that's like, Heath Ledger is the new Matt Damon. And you're like, yeah, he was.
1: (laughs) Are you saying that the Sega Dreamcast didn't age well?
0: You and then I think was
1: discontinued like a year later.
0: <laughs> you know, I'm, yes. <laughs> but then you have things like Target and, and Revlon and Coca-Cola, like these big brands that have still maintained like absolute powerhouse status. And I think one of the other planes is like a Motorola plane. Motorola isn't nearly as big now as they were then. Like there's no Apple product in this movie. Right. But I do want to talk a bit about probably the most important aspect of this movie uh let's talk about the music
2: so good i mean i was a letters to cleo fan before this movie came out same so this was a, like an added bonus because uh you know kay hanley who wrote all the music and performed all the music in this uh for those who don't know is was, was the lead singer of a, a group called letters to cleo and the music that Uh, she does in this movie is not really all that far off from letters to Cleo. So you can really kind of like, if you're a letters to Cleo fan, you technically got a freebie album out of this movie. (laughs) Or if you really are one of these people who wants to live in the fantasy of your favorite fictional bands, you can just put a letters to Cleo album on and be like, this was another Josie album.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: BJ, I knew you were a big Letters to Cleo fan even before this movie because you loved them in uh, 10 Things I Hate About You.
0: I did. I love them in 10 Things I Hate About You and actually my introduction to Letters to Cleo, which is going to be... This is a weird tangent. The movie Wish Upon a Star with Katherine Heigl and Daniel Harris, which is another one of my all-time favorite movies that totally gets slept on, they have uh, Moonpools and Caterpillars, which is a very Letters to Cleo-esque band. And I remember when that movie came out, and I was a wee child armed with LimeWire or Kazaa. I don't know which one I had at the time. Might have even been like WinMX. Like, I don't know. You weren't
1: a Napster kid?
0: I was not a Napster kid because uh, Napster was on the news, so that meant it was scary. But the rest of them were never on the news, so I could use that guilt-free. And I remember looking up, trying to find... this band Moonpools and caterpillars and you know illegally download their music because we didn't know that it was like that bad then or at least i didn't because i was 11 and a bunch of letters to cleo kept coming up because they're very similar artists and i was like this band is amazing and there's a lady singer this is new for me Mm -hmm. and really really loved them and then of course made the connection with 10 things i hate about you so as as a child i did not know that was Kay Hanley, I just thought, Rachel Lee Cook can really fucking sing. Wow. Um, And it wasn't until I got my VHS copy and did a little bit more research. And I was like, oh, no, that's not her. And it's the singer of this band that I like. This is what a gift. What a delight. And that's sort of been my feeling about it ever since.
1: Yeah. And honestly, you mentioning, oh, hey, there's a girl singer in this band. Can we just talk about how like what an oddity it was to have female fronted rock like this at the time? And much less like an all like girl band. I think the only thing I could think of that was out specifically at the time was the Donnas, and they certainly weren't like the biggest deal in the world.
2: No, it's true because you know I I uh, was an attendee of Lilith Fair during this era, and there was a lot of like lady rock, for lack of a better term. But but Harmony is right, like in terms of pop punk adjacent or pop punk direct bands. It was kind of few and far between. I mean, like mm-hmm. Liz, Liz Fair was out there doing her thing, and I'm a huge Liz Fair fan. But Letters to Cleo, maybe garbage would like kind of be part of this sort of conversation. But in terms of just like going to your record store and seeing these on the end cap, it, it was few and far between. And I, I think that's what made me love them so much. It felt like extra punk in a way, and and it shouldn't because like we should have equality across our music artists, but. You know, industries are awful sometimes.
0: (laughs) I mean, a big reason that I hold this all so preciously is because my voice has never been like a pop singer. Like when Dolores Reardon passed away, I was like really heartbroken Mm -hmm. because the Cranberries is one of the bands that taught me how to sing because she sings in my register. So it was a huge deal for me, especially as like a very musically inclined child and one who was desperate to be the center of attention that I had this movie because I could sing all of this music. When we were packing to move out uh, out to Los Angeles, I found like an old red burned CD, and all of the ink had left it at this point. It's just been destroyed. And I know it's the Josie and the Pussycat soundtrack because I listened to it on a loop so much, and I knew that it would like that's my red CD because, You know, back when burning CDs was all the rage, they would sell, like, the the rainbow sleeve of discs. Uh Uh-huh. And my red one was Josie. And I will... Because it matches her hair. hair. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I I, had a theme going.
2: I bought the soundtrack CD when it came out, uh, probably within the week of seeing the movie. And it was, like, at Camelot Music, for those of you in the Midwest who remember that place. I think they became uh, swallowed up by FYE at some point. But, Uh yeah, that was my, like... I'm going to save my, my pennies and go and get me that Josie soundtrack. And I still have it. I still have that album somewhere around here. So,
1: we uh, I say we, but BJ's definitely the one who bought it. But I'm the one with the record player. We definitely own the Josie soundtrack on vinyl with a special 45 of du jour in addition to it. <laughs> it's
0: one of the smartest things that Mondo has ever done, in my opinion. It's a, a perfect release.
1: It's amazing, but something that we haven't talked about, like I guess specifically, and we've we've sort of done this in our past May musical month episodes, but not really formally. What's the best song in this "quote unquote" musical?
0: Mm. Why are you asking me to choose between children? That's really rude.
1: I'm just I'm just curious. What does everyone think is the best song? Because I can tell you which one it's not. It's not uh the ballad.
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> I almost started singing and I stopped myself. Um, I
0: like the ballad first off, but it's not the best. You are correct.
2: Um, no, I'm with I'm with BJ on this. Like, I love every song on this soundtrack, mostly equally because it's hard to choose. I mean, three small words is, is just rock and roll. But I don't know. I might almost have to say "pretend to be nice." Like, oh, I love "pretend to be nice." It's very a uh,
1: power pop. It's almost got like a glam rock flavor to it. That's really nice.
2: Yeah.
0: I also really like Spin Around a lot. I think it's very fun. And that's the one that, I think that's like my hipster choice is like my favorite Josie song is the actually The one from the climax spin of the around. movie. <laughs> like, yeah, that's my hipster choice. But Three Small Words is, like that will be one of the sounds that my brain fires off when I'm dying. Yeah. Like in my like final moments, like that's going to be like, boop, this is what you get to listen to before we shut your brain off. Because it is so implanted in my my being I guess because I remember growing up being a punk rock prom queen because I was like the alt girl but I also did pageants and did baton and I felt so like yeah this is me that I can be tough and I can be punk but I'm also like really feminine and girly as hell and I wear makeup and like I can do both damn it and like that just meant a lot to me and yeah three small words that's gonna be my pick and I know that that's like the basic choice, ob- the, obvious the obvious one. one. I don't fucking care. I mean, I'm not going to argue with you. That I it's have the best no, one. I have no pretension with Josie and the Pussycats. That's a lie. Yes, I do. I've, <laughs> I have pretension for the film, but as far as the music, like, yeah, I'll be a sellout mark for Josie all day.
2: Well, that was also the song when they did kind of do the little like. MTV tie in uh, to promote it that that was the song that they played on TRL because obviously Carson Daly's in the movie He was dating Tara Reid at the time they did like kind of like a montage music video so three small words was sort of the song that got out in front of the movie I just wish that it had also been like more of a pop single on the radio because that would have been just so great to be like bopping along in the car listening to it with your friends you know
1: Uh, And I honestly wonder when this could have been a hit because it should have been like the hooks on this album are so good. And I don't know when there would have almost been a better time for this to come out because this was the era of pop punk. And I think people just didn't back the movie the way they should have.
0: I agree. And that was kind of one of the big things I also wanted us to talk about is why do we think that this movie just completely flew under the radar or people actively ignored it. Michael, I'm curious on your take because you were not a child when this came out. <laughs> so you probably have a better perspective on it than I do. Um, You know,
2: there's probably a number of reasons. And I'm I, I try to think back on the marketing around this movie because a lot of times when a movie kind of actively takes on the industry that releases it, they don't really know how to market it, right? And uh-huh. I, th- I, I think that probably what happened was here's this movie that is criticizing media conglomerates, kind of taking on capitalist culture and the idea of uh, using culture to sway, sway purchases. I'm I'm sure that that was something that they weren't really keen on putting in a in a trailer. And if you watch the trailer, they they really don't hit those points a lot. And so I think that what we talked about earlier, this idea that there was sort of this backswing against pop music by this point, the idea that like the the Insyncs and the Backstreet Boys and that sort of like shine of teen pop and teen pop movies, like you know, 10 Things I Hate About You and She's All That were sort of on the decline, people probably saw like, oh, there's that girl from She's All That and here's this and it's a teen movie about a girl band and blah, 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 blah. You know, we're just not going to go see it. And I think that's probably a huge, huge contribution to uh, why this didn't connect. Because anybody I knew at the time who saw it liked it, which was really interesting because this was never one of those movies where like I ran into someone who's like, oh, I saw Josie and the Pussycats and I fucking sucked." That never happened. It uh-huh. was like, oh, I saw that movie and I love that movie. But the problem is, is 90% of the people that you ran into just had never seen it. And I think that home video helped kind of it catch a new audience, but I don't want to speak 100% on the marketing at the time cuz I honestly don't remember but I think there had to be a delivery issue. There had to be some sense of of this not being kind of sold in the way that it needed to be to get to the people that it wanted to. I think also, you know, the reality of of uh misogynistic pop culture is is like mm-hmm. a lot of, of people spending their money are like I don't want to see a movie about girls because we still fucking deal with that today and it's bullshit. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I It's a bummer. And I have to tell you that um, when I was at the 15th anniversary and uh, Deborah Kaplan and Harry Alfont were talking, the moderator asked, what's it like seeing your movie gain this following over the last 15 years? Like, you know, you know, to see people really embrace this movie after all this time. And, and Deborah Kaplan, I think, kind of cut through the bullshit and she said, it's really cool. She said, I only wish that people had discovered this movie 15 years ago. You know, she, mm-hmm. because for anybody working in the industry to take the hit that they did, it was probably an uphill climb after this film. So there's got to be something bittersweet. This movie that probably put their career on pause because it wasn't a huge success at the box office. And of course, there's a vindication. But then you know, wouldn't it have been nice if like, you know, everybody who loves it now loved it then? I don't know. It's it's it is the trajectory of all cult films, I guess, that they get discovered over time. And there's always a number of factors about maybe why they didn't hit. And I, I don't know.
0: I think a lot with like Deborah Kaplan, too, especially because she's also a woman director. And she made Can't Hardly Wait, you know, and that's a bona fide classic, like people mm-hmm. love that movie. And then, you know, she and Harry make make Josie and it tanks and then Deborah doesn't direct again until 2016 and just does like two episodes of television and then she doesn't direct again until 20 like 19 2020 and does a little bit more television like she really has not directed since this like director's jail is fucking real and we love to pretend that it, it doesn't exist and I think if anything like I wish that the the new resurgence of Josie fans and this sort of reclamation that has happened because I think the reason there is this big fan base now is exactly what you were saying where people who saw this liked this movie but they likely didn't know a lot of other people who liked this movie and then when we have the internet and we can communicate with each other and we can all say like hey name your top 10 movies and somebody throws it on the list, it's like, oh my god, I thought I was the only person in the world who liked this movie. Like, no one ever talks about this movie. And now we can talk about this movie. I wish that it would turn into like, you know what, we should probably revisit the work of Deborah Kaplan and, and, and Harry Alphont. Like, we should probably give them another look.
1: Absolutely. But also the... I guess, lack of success that Josie had in its theatrical run kind of impacted future films like this because the Scooby-Doo movie that we got, I believe the following year was supposed to be PG-13, but then they dialed it down to PG because Josie did not succeed and they had to do a lot of rewrites. And don't get me wrong, I love the Scooby-Doo live action movie. I think the cast is so, having so much fun and that really makes the film, but it would have been so much more interesting to see it as a PG-13 film. Yeah
0: yeah i agree with you completely i mean even recently james gunn was talking about how he tried to make velma canonically queer and the studio was like terrified of taking that risk not just because of obviously blatant homophobia but citing josie's failure of having this like girl characters or having girl characters that boys could not relate to and then they changed it and that's really frustrating to me how much we care about centering boys in all forms of media.
1: Yeah. And I I have a question, I guess, for the two of you, is that aside from the, I guess, big fight before the final concert, there's not a lot of language in this film, and there's not a lot of really particularly adult jokes. I mean, there's definitely mature jokes because they're just really smart and would go over children's heads, but would Josie have done better as a PG film if they had just made like a couple minor cuts or would it have been too smart and also been a failure for like, you know, 11 year olds who aren't BJ?
2: Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard to say, but I I think that Harmony, you you might just be right. I think it just was too smart and I think it's probably how it was packaged. And it's also what, what BJ is saying is the industry really, Uh, was and is afraid to market things to anyone other than boys Mm -hmm. and so it was like you know whether you know Parker Posey says ass or not in the final reel this is a movie that they probably were just like well it's not three ninjas it's three girls so how do we even sell it well plenty of people want to see that movie but Mm -hmm. you have to give Mm -hmm. it a chance you know
1: I agree, and the movie that I I made BJ watch like a week ago before we sat down to do this, which is my version of Josie, is the Rocky and Bullwinkle live-action film, and it's it's very similar in like how smart it is, but that movie was marketed as being extremely dumb. It picked the worst ways to market it, and it's both too smart and too stupid for its own good, and Josie is half of that it's definitely too smart for its own good but i think it was probably marketed as dumber than it is because again like like fun pop music or or fun pop punk music was seen as like kitty at the time like i don't know what the contemporary would have been maybe s club seven but it's like oh yeah no if you make fun music and you're a group then you're clearly meant for like young kids
2: yeah um, I do want to tell you that uh, I also saw Rocky and Bullwinkle at the m- movie theater um, because I love uh, Piper Perabo. She's
1: great in that movie. <laughs> it's Karen
2: Sympathy. Uh, oh. She's so good. Uh, I'm a longtime fan. Um, just that's a whole other thing. I need to come back so we c- <laughs> we can talk about the oeuvre of Piper Perabo. <laughs> yes.
0: But what I find really interesting with this kind of boom in the late 90s and into the 2000s where we do have these properties, like my mom was so hyped to take us to see Josie and the Pussycats because she remembered it from when she was a kid. Uh And I find that really, really cool. And what I also think is interesting is especially with Riverdale, like the success of Riverdale, I think that also had a lot of people rediscovering Josie as the movie and also just like the verse in mm-hmm. in general and I'm curious how a movie like Josie and the Pussycats could be made today Like, like what would it be criticizing today because I think that Josie the movie is perfect because it is that time capsule it is capturing so I'm curious for the both of you like what would Josie look like if it was made today
1: oh 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 Would it be a good version of the Gem and the Holograms movie? Oh,
0: I don't know if there is a good version of that movie. I'm sorry. I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) I mean, you're Um, not wrong, but it basically follow the, the format of what that movie did, but be smarter and better and funnier.
2: Um, I will say uh, I have I have no skin in the game of the Gem in the Holograms movie, other than the fact that I really wish we had gotten more of Kesha as pizzazz. I think if you're gonna make <laughs> if you're gonna make a Gem in the Holograms movie, you got to give me the Misfits. That's just basically where I stand on that. huh um, Their songs are better. They are. It's in the it's in the theme song. <laughs> Truly outrageous. Anyway, the uh, I guess you know I I don't know that you could replicate what was done with Josie and the Pussycats as it was, because as as we've all been discussing, it's a perfect kind of encapsulation of sort of the branding pop culture of that moment. I think if you were going to do a new version of it, you would have to kind of take on what the machine is now. And it's it's something Uh that we three are familiar with. And that's like, how are labels and studios and influencers Reaching out to us uh, by the tendrils of social media. I mean and and I'm not just talking like YouTube It's like how do you package a band on Twitter like this morning? We're gonna like make this band the biggest thing with the best hashtag But if they don't sell the way we want to by tomorrow We'll destroy them and we you could like literally have a whole like social media movie where Josie and the pussycats kind of rise and fall in this this new realm because we've seen it happen to pop stars today. Like, you know, people love, love, love Lady Gaga on Twitter, and then she tweets something, and people love, love, love to take the piss out of Lady Gaga on Twitter. So it's kind of like, it's the damned if you do, damned if you don't. And that whole, like, environment didn't even exist when Josie and the Pussycats was made.
1: Yeah, and honestly, it'd be really, really interesting to see how you would make a film like this today, considering that the record industry, like, doesn't know what to do with pop music anymore. Like, they are at a complete loss, and pretty much the autopilot that it has been on for at least the last two decades isn't working anymore, and there's now ways that the pop charts or or the radio are being circumvented, uh, TikTok being a really good example, and when the music industry tries to infiltrate it with industry plans, it blows up in their face.
0: I'm Yeah, okay. So I know we briefly touched on this on a previous episode, but Michael, do you know about Tramp Stamps? Not like the practice of getting a tattoo on the your band. lower back, but the band Tramp Stamps.
2: N- I do not.
0: Okay. So strap in. This is going to be really exciting for you and any of the listeners who don't know about this. So TikTok uh, had this band that ended up on all of our For You pages. So like, there's clearly like a lot of money being cranked out in prioritizing this content of three girls. Uh, and they are very, like, Powerpuff girl in nature and that each of them is, like, a color. And they have, like, just enough roots grown out so that it looks relatable, but then, like, big, bright pink hair or blue hair or purple hair. And they sing songs with lyrics like, I'd rather die than sleep with another straight white guy, despite the fact all three of them are white. And it was supposed, like, it's very pop-punk music. Like, I'm not going to lie, like, the music is good. The lyrics are trash, but... <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, to be young. Oh, to
0: be young. <laughs> but pretty much, like, the, it, it almost felt like a music studio took like an algorithm of, like, Gen Z activism and aesthetic and put it through AI and then, like, shit out a band and then tried to feed it to Gen Z as, like, this is what you kids like, right? And it was rejected immediately. Everybody saw through it. They were like this is fake. This is not real. This is no. They and of course because you know, the, the devil works hard but TikTok works harder. They found all of their social media from before they were this band and like one of the girls is a Disney adult and the other one like rides horses. They're like you're not punk. You're not cool. We fucking hate this. It became a meme where people were just making fun of the songs that TikTok and like these industry plants were like so heavily trying to be like, this is what cool is. And it just backfired completely, like imploded. They were everywhere for like two weeks and now they're gone, like completely gone.
2: Uh, you know what's interesting about this. So when I first moved to Los Angeles, I had uh, briefly worked a lot in the digital space, uh, it kind of during the the big YouTube boom of that kind of like early tens. Uh-huh. And um, you know, we have sort of like that first and second wave of influencers, YouTubers, whatever term you want to use that actually did sort of organically grow. like you know, whether however you feel about these people, like someone like Tyler Oakley, for example, started uh, vlogging in his dorm room in Michigan and mm-hmm. grew his whole like experience organically because that was just the moment. You really can't do that now because it's been monetized and it's been branded. And to become a YouTuber the way old youtubers did is is nigh impossible. But one of the things that I remember was very big in the discussion w- with the rise of content networks is how, They are aware that digital audiences are very keen on authenticity in the way that, like, if I'm a YouTuber and I'm just like, hey, hello, everybody, you know, don't forget to click subscribe and, like, leave a comment in the doop-de-doo and blah, 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 blah. Um, The second they think that you're being produced by some major company or being, like, branded they'll turn on you. That was a, that mm-hmm. used to be a huge discussion. And so it's interesting because like that was something they were talking about as far back as YouTube, so to see TikTok try when a lot of those execs and CEOs are still the same people, it's like don't you remember your own lessons? Like the the platforms may be different, but the audience is the same. And that's what Josie and the Pussycats is really all about. It's just like people do still want authenticity somewhere in the heart of their art, even mm-hmm. if it does even if there is a manufactured element if there's not some truth to it, it's ultimately going to fall flat, I think.
1: So what you're saying is that a new version of Josie would feature a bad band like Tramp Stamps in place of du jour, <laughs> and then we would get like a Fabulous Stains version of Josie, <laughs> and the skunk hair would be unrelated and a clumsy transition in those two films?
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> when I think about Josie and the success of it, I always think about the end of Big Concert where, you know, the the giant machine has been destroyed. The kids are no longer being fed subliminal messages. And Josie performs a song that they've not heard before. Mm -hmm. And the whole kind of push on it is, it's cool if you like it. It's okay if you don't. Just think for yourselves. And I love that message. But at the same time, though, like, Even without the brainwashing, like these kids have spent all this money, they're all at this concert, you clearly want to have a good time, even though you're not being brainwashed and told you should like this. I feel like you're probably gonna like it and have a good time. Like I am definitely that person. I never want to dislike a movie. And if I'm really excited to see it, I'll go see that movie and I'm like, oh, that was great. And then it'll be like four hours later that I'm like, wait, no, I actually really didn't like that. I feel that way when I see new Star Wars movies, where I'm always so <laughs> hype. And then I'm like, that was fine. And then I get home, I'm like, no, it's not. I'm really upset. I didn't like that at all. So I'm curious, like, do we think that this audience genuinely likes shows in the Pussycats, or are they just like, we're at a concert, we like it?
1: I feel like they must have, because concert fans will absolutely shit on something, especially if they go, don't play your new stuff play the stuff that we know (laughs) well
2: well, and I I think an important thing because here we are we're kind of talking about the authenticity versus versus the machine but the reality is is if you're living in the real world and you are a fan of film you're a fan of art you're a fan of music the machine itself is inescapable and like we all we all to some degree are fans of the machine and so it's just like I think how the machine is managed is sort of like What we kind of rub up against sometimes if you go see a movie a major studio produced it if you see it at a major theater like if you buy an album that is got music on the radio it's because a major label produced it, but it's the levels of authenticity and how that message is delivered that I think is sort of how we engage. Because they're even the most hardcore person that I know that's like, oh, yeah, no, no, like corporation, blah, 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 blah. But then like on their jacket, they may have like a Tinkerbell patch. And it's like, see, we can't get away from the machine,
1: uh-huh.
2: but it's how you engage with the machine, I think. Yeah, if, that, if I, that makes sense.
1: No, absolutely. And I think that when it comes to something like, you know, the greater concept of capitalism, we all have to take part in capitalism. It's It's not really avoidable in its current state. But we're still allowed to be mad about being forced to take place in capitalism.
2: Yeah. and I, th- I think that you know the at the end of of Josie's really smart in the way that it's like, yes, Fiona and Wyatt are defeated. and it's like, think for yourselves. Josie never at any point asserts that like the brands are dead. It's like they're still there, but you get a little more autonomy. Don't just buy something because someone, if you want to shop at Target, do it because you you want to shop at Target. Don't do it because you feel like you have to. That's kind of like, I feel like, the ultimate message of Josie and the Pussycats. Um, because they know that they're not going to change the world from one concert, you know. Or maybe they do. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> one
1: concert can say, change the world. I learned that from School of Rock. <laughs>
0: I think you're absolutely right, and I think that that is kind of the perfect note for us to to go out on. Before we give all of our plugs, I do want to say, dear listeners, that we have a very special treat for you at the end of this episode.
1: Speaking of authenticity.
0: Speaking of authenticity, um, as those of you who follow us on social media know, we did do a giveaway where we asked people to give us a promposal, and oh, did we get a motherfucking promposal. Uh-huh. Listener Raphael, I'm obsessed with you. First Same. of all, Raphael has asked to be credited as Raphael and the three small words, not knowing that we were doing a Josie episode because you're just the best and I love you. So listeners, if you are like, oh, they're starting to do plugs, I'm gonna tune out. No, stay. There's a pop pump song and it it's the fucking coolest thing that anyone has ever done for us ever. and you're you're gonna love it. but mm-hmm. uh, before we get to that, Michael, where can people find you on the internet, or projects you're working on, or things you want to plug, or if you don't want them to find you on the internet? The world is your oyster. Um, Well,
2: first and foremost, I am quite easily found on Twitter. It's just my name, at Michael Verratti. Uh, I, as some of you know, I used to host a queer horror podcast called Dead for Filth. All 100 episodes of that are available wherever podcasts are found. Uh, BJ did mention that, yes, I am indeed a filmmaker. Uh, I've got films that have aired on TV and been on streaming services. I also was a writer and director on the Boulet Brothers' Dracula. My most recent project is a short film called What's Left Inside, which is a queer horror short all about uh, post-pandemic horror and it stars uh, Danny Plotner who a lot of you know from the internet and twitch and things and uh, That's rolling out at festivals now and probably my big big announcement For those of you who have been asking me whether I'm going to ever return to the world of podcasts Is that I'm teaming up with my dear ghoul friend peaches Christ for a new podcast called midnight mass celebrating ooh,
0: yes <laughs>
2: all things cult cinema and uh Bringing you a celebration of of the children of the popcorn, coming soon.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh, my whole heart just exploded. <laughs> this, that's just fantastic, friends. As always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at This Ends at Prom. We also have our Patreon at This Ends at Prom. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at BJ Colangelo. Harmony, where are you?
1: I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at. Velocitraptor, traptor
0: And Harmony, do you have a band for us this week? Because you all know and love the Sonderbombs, the performers of our theme song, and we really like sharing that wealth and introducing you all to other indie bands we think you'll like. So Harmony, what do you got? I
1: picked one that was very appropriate for this, called Half Past Two. And the specific reason that I selected Half Past 2 is because they do a killer ska version of three small words in addition to their original songs.
0: Hell yeah. That's great. That's wonderful. Well, friends, thank you for listening. Michael, thank you again for being with us. And everyone, stick around for this pop punk song. It's going to blow your mind. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Yay. One,
2: two, three, four. D-O-Y-O-U, wanna go,
1: D-O-Y-O-U, wanna go, D-O-Y-O-U, wanna go, D-O-Y-O-U, wanna go. D-O-Y-O-U. Do you wanna go to prom with me? It'll be just like a Johnny's movie, with all the racist, sexist stuff, that shit was weird, that what the fuck? Do you wanna go to prom with me? We're Veronica and their JD, fuck them playing with the chainsaw mask, they're but this school doesn't the scene? D-O-Y-O-U, wanna
0: go. Go. Do you want to go to prom with me? We'll dress
1: in dragon, queer the armies. Who's the boy? Who's the girl? The There's neither here but that world? Do you want to go to prom with me? Take our pictures, then go see a movie. Skip the dance in the shitty songs, just fast from home. Struck like it all night long.
0: D-O-Y-U, want to go. D-O-Y-U, want to go. Do you want to go to
1: prom with me? Dance real slow, cheap-to-cheek. Like a song by Sandwood, or a green as romance together. A just a punk
0: rock show and watch TV i got E-C-W on DVD Watch Sally View with R-V-T D-O-Y-O-U-W-A-N-N Um, dancing. Not such a good idea for me.
1: <laughs> this episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of
2: this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.